News. 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 New York City. F A Q. It started with a crack. It's never coming back. Burnt down to the ground, the town of Jamaica. Welcome to FAQ NYC. This is Alex Brooklyn, and this episode is part of our special series for October, uh, Eulogy for New York. We had a bunch of wonderful New Yorkers write eulogies, whatever that meant to them, for New York. And today we're going to talk to Issa Ibrahim, artist living in Queens, who already had a eulogy of sorts written uh, for Jamaica Queens, and it's a song. So Issa, hello. Hello, Alex. Hi. Hi. Uh, so how are you doing today on this fine Sunday? It is a fine Sunday, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a beautiful Sunday, beautiful fall Sunday. Yeah, I love I live for days like today to get up early. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, just kind of enjoy it. Have my coffee and look out the window. Yeah, the windows and walls. I'm in Jackson Heights and yeah. You have to look up to get some sunshine, but I, I tend up to look at other people's apartments. I, not in a peeping tom kind of, not in a creepy way, but just you know, just to look at the other people enjoying their day as, as they look at me enjoying my day. Do you do you have the windows that um, look out onto like like a almost not siloed because it's square, but the other apartments that are right no, across? Right across the street. It's, it's nothing but apartment buildings here at Jackson Heights. And I'm, everywhere I look, there's somebody else's window. <laughs> They're the cats, the morning cats who sit in the window. We have cats that sit in our window, so everybody has a cat. Morning apartment cats that you see morning across cats. the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind of enjoy that. Yeah. I have apartments even closer than across the street. Wow. We're really, you know, in the same building, (laughs) I think there was a law that was created that you had to have some kind of air shaft, right? Right. And the building I'm in is built 1900. So Mm. it has the center completely out. And we have a garbage area that I call the courtyard, but really it's garbage (laughs) area. (laughs) (laughs) It's the garbage area. Also, it has like fans from the pizza restaurant that like send hot air up in the summertime. And in the wintertime, you can hear rats fighting for food. And yet, (laughs) I'll tell you, these apartments are going for I know, some. Right? yeah, I know. very. But so these neighbors I have are a really, really close across the way. They've seen me like walk the baby around. They've seen me pregnant. I've seen them like having mm-hmm. arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very, it's a very close building. Yeah, yeah. Wow. When we all come out into the landing, we don't acknowledge that we right. clearly see each other right. all that there's that dance too that new york dance of i know what you do but when you go out and when you're by the elevator or something like that but getting the mail you just like totally ignore each other yeah so tell me a little bit about you and tell me all i know about you because yeah, i've yeah. uh i've hung out with you for many years but tell my listeners a little bit about you all right i'm a visual artist a musician uh, an author thank goodness i got a chance to uh write my memoirs uh, which sounds very highfalutin my memoirs you know but uh, uh a filmmaker um and a general uh just an artist you know who grew up in jamaica queens and found myself caught up in the uh 
madness that en enveloped all of the city in the late 80s, early 90s uh, with drugs. And uh, my, my drug of choice was marijuana, which may make a lot of people go, oh, what, what, that's not a drug of choice. That's a recreation. But for me, it was a very serious addiction. As a result of my addiction and constant use, it uh, created dissonance and a problem to the point where I developed schizophrenia behind the marijuana smoke and committed a very horrible act which landed me in Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, which is in Queens Village in the woods of Queens. And I was there for almost 20 years. While there, it was a kind of like a mixed blessing in that I was committed to a place that I may never get out of. I mean, ostensibly, I would spend the rest of my life there. I had to kind of fight my way out. But the beautiful thing was that it had an art program that was unlike anything in America or maybe even the world, maybe for Gugging, that place in... Austria, where they had the mentally ill people painting all day. Uh, and that was kind of like the, the, the uh, inspiration by these two European artists and psychiatrists, psychologists who started the program. And just curious, what were the names, if you remember? Yes, Bolet Grzynski. He's a Polish artist and filmmaker uh, and provocateur who passed away due to AIDS complications in the 90s, 44. I knew him very briefly, but he's a beautiful guy. A uh, very real character. And Dr. Janusz Martin, who is a psychologist and also a filmmaker, and they met in Columbia Film School and formed a partnership, formed an alliance. And in the early 80s, Janusz was working in Creedmoor as a psychologist, and he was walking the grounds into all these abandoned buildings and said, man, that'd be great to start some, to start an art project there. And they dreamt it, and it just happened by kismet to be at a time when the administration was saying, you want the building, take it. You know, we're not doing anything with it. And they got the building and uh, transformed it after 30, 40 years into a huge, wondrous two-tiered two art space. And so I would go there every day and paint. And I was a failed art student. You know, I, I failed, I dropped out of art school, but that's where, that was my education, going to the living museum every day and painting every day and getting up my craft. And soaking in a lot of art from these two Europeans who, you know, had a great uh, understanding and knowledge of, of art and outside art, which I later began to, began to truck in. Um, <clears throat> and after a long fought uh, court battle, I did win my freedom in 2009 after 19 years. Uh, and then I just embarked on an art career with the help of... Uh, exposure in an HBO documentary I and mean, things came to me. It's, it's almost like my mom who I lost as a result of my mental illness and a horrible tragic accident, but she, she blessed me or it's like she was up there with the angels. She said, okay, this is a bad thing that happened to my baby. I forgive him and let's kind of like give him things. Let's, let's give him things. You know? So I, I was really blessed every step of the way. A lot of people don't know about the Living Museum and that actually they can visit it yes. if they make an appointment. I visited your studio, I think, tw 2016. Yes. And um, you no longer have a studio there, right? I do. I, oh, do. I, do. I, I have a workspace. I, I don't work there too much anymore because I've been fortunate enough to get my own apartment with my partner, Susan, who I've known for 25 years, who I met at the Living Museum. And we do all of our artwork here in the apartment. And, but I do have a space where I keep a lot of the bigger work that I can't transport to here. So for people who were to go there and see, they'd see some, some, some of my work. Yeah. And some of your bigger work is the, mm -hmm. are these like amazing depictions of superheroes, DC, mm -hmm. Marvel, uh, depicted 
in different ways, sometimes as African-American civil rights heroes, sometimes as sexual orgies. My favorite painting might be the Hulk on the toilet, reading a paper. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's become one of my iconic pieces, believe it or not. And people from three to, to 93 will, will walk by if I have that displayed. Oh, look, Hulk on the toilet, Hulk on the toilet. And your partner, Susan, has also been involved in a lot of your artwork. She yes. makes artwork of her own, but she's been involved. You've done uh, films together. You've done paintings together, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes, yes. Yeah. She's a mute. Not only have we done paintings together, but she's like been a muse for uh, uh, 20 years. Yeah. And you guys she's met at Creedmoor. At, in Creedmoor. She was going through a very terrible time. Uh, 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 kind of like a teenage angst that went on a little too long, you know, and, uh, and she found herself depressed and in a lot of pain and uh, wound up through a lot of mismanagement in a psych, in a state psychiatric center. And that's where we met. And uh, uh, she got out like maybe three months after she got admitted, thank goodness. But I was there for 15 years after we met. I mean, she just kept coming back. She just kept coming back to visit. And we developed a friendship and a love. And then I got out and we stuck together. And now we, now we live together. So it's kind of like a beautiful story. So tell me a little bit about um, some of the music that you make. And then I really want to hear about, you know, more experiences about what led you to write this song, this eulogy for Jamaica Queens. Well, uh, my dad was a jazz musician back in the 50s and in the 60s and then and then when jazz went fusion you know and wasn't trad jazz like miles davis and the cool stuff anymore and when it changed like all musics do he wasn't into it because a lot of it required taking lsd and the harder drugs and he was like nah it's okay i'm happy with my pop you know um so he ended up uh becoming a worker at a New Jersey bandstand, doing like weekend gigs, doing uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs, you know, bad stuff, doing top 40. I remember when he came home one day and said, yes, you want me to do Whip It? Whip It is. And I said, that's a good song. It's a horrible song. No, it's a good song. Yeah. But anyways, having that uh, education, having your father as a jazz musician, my mother as, a, as an avid record collector, I soaked in a lot of music, but I never really had anything to sing about. I was like a middle-class black kid, which maybe has some reference, but not much. So all my years when I was out and about in the 1980s, I had nothing to sing about until I lost my mind, committed this horrible act and wound up in a mental hospital. Then all of a sudden I had something to sing about. That was like fodder for songs, you know? And so I also ended up in an inappropriate relationship with one of the staff there and we got caught. But one of her lovely parting gifts, you could say, was she left me with a guitar. And I took what few chords I already knew and then took, put some effort into learning to play the damn thing because I had nothing but time. And songs started pouring out of me. So here I was locked up in a mental hospital with really, truly no release date and a guitar and a head full of songs. And so I just started writing songs, writing songs. And after a while, I had hundreds of them. And after a while, I... Saved up some money from art sales in the hospital, which seems unlikely, but it's true. I had, I had a nest egg. So I bought a recording setup, a little portable recorder and some mic. And so after, after a while, I started uh, making records, uh, CDs, and mailing them out to all the connections I'd made at the Living Museum. 
over the years because uh, a lot of a lot of European tourists come to Living Museum because they'd heard of it through the European contacts of the people who ran the program. So I was making like these little homemade CDs and and snail mailing it to to various places all over the world. And I just kept doing that, just kept recording. And as you, as you do anything, you get better at it, you know. And so the first couple of records I made were real. They had a naive charm to them, but uh, pretty rudimentary. But after a while, I was really getting good at it. And uh, I ended up with like 15 albums that no one's buying. But they, they stand as a, as a testament to uh, an experience. Uh, uh, and they're also themed with mental health and themed with loss and isolation and and which now everyone's doing, you know, or maybe in the 90s that became like a, a common theme. So yeah, I just became a pop singer for a minute there. But then my guitar ran out of songs, as someone once said, you know, uh, and I just stopped writing and stopped recording. And I realized after like 15 albums, I kind of shot my wad, excuse the language. You know, I didn't, I haven't done anything in about two, about five, four or five years now. Some of your songs talks very specifically about uh, your condition when you were had acute symptoms of yes. uh, schizophrenia. One of the yes. songs, uh, Paranoid. Yes, yes, Paranoid. Yeah, definitely. And I thought that song was incredibly informative uh, because it's a, it's a great song, but it's also about the the ways in which you felt that everyone was when speaking to you were was kind of speaking the double speak as you call yes, it. Yes, and, uh, yes. I tried to capture that. Yeah, and I'm also successful. I tried other passes at it, but that one's probably the, the most successful of the bunch. But yeah, I, I, that, that weird dissonance, that weird feeling, and, and looking in the mirror and being in your own head and in examining yourself and examining yourself through your eyes and through other people's eyes. You know? And a lot of that, I think, mental illness is just insecurity and what other people think about you, what you fear other people will think about you. And so you're looking at yourself through the, through the eyes of society and judging yourself as you feel you're being judged and just like layers of insecurity, really. And trying to capture that in a song, which, in a two minute pop song. Which, you, know. you talk a lot about the death of Jamaica Queens and yes. in your work, not only are there themes exp expressing your feelings and experience with mental illness, but also race growing up in the 80s. So can you talk a little bit more specifically about your song? Yeah. Uh, uh, like I mentioned, my dad was a jazz musician and my, and my, 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 my parents were more like bohemians, not hippies, but uh, uh, beatniks, like a generation before the hippies. You know, mm -hmm. They were like, so, and they had a little bit of money and, and they, invested in a home in Jamaica, Queens. And back in the 50s and 60s, when the Black were <clears throat> maybe allowed to uh, have a, a part, take part in the American dream and become a part of the middle class, which doesn't really exist anymore, they were a part of the Black middle class, you know, the bourgeoisie, Negro bourgeoisie, which I talk about in the song. And uh, we all our friends in that neighborhood were all strivers, what they used to call, you know, black people who got up and who worked hard and got up enough money to buy a home for the children, to invest, you know, in, in a home. And uh, I saw, I got, for a brief moment, I was cognizant of how special and beautiful that was in the 70s. 
And throughout the 80s, I saw that tarnish, you know, and saw crack move in and just obliterate that whole dream. And it even infected our home in that I became a marijuana addict. You know, my parents smoked a lot of marijuana and all their friends with jazz musicians who come over and smoke marijuana. And it affected me in a negative way, but that affects a lot of people differently. So I can't even talk about that. But crack also invaded the home in that my two older brothers became crackheads. And watching it that close up what, and see how other people in the, in the neighborhood were. One guy, our next door neighbor, uh, had a beautiful home and sold it for $50,000 and disappeared for three months. But then you saw him wandering the neighborhood looking for crack, you know. Um, and that was like a horrible, a horrible, horrible, horrible experience. You know, he just, he just fell through the cracks. Now, I don't know what, what happened to him. I don't know what happened to anybody from that old neighborhood anymore. And I haven't been back uh, except to do some shooting for a video I did. But even then, I was kind of looking over my shoulder and hoping no one recognized me. Not that I'm famous or anything, but just recognize me from what happened in my life that was such a terrible disturbance that might give somebody a negative feeling to then stop me in the street and give me a hard time. Um, but yeah, it, it was just to watch that, to watch a beautiful neighborhood like that tarnish and, and know that that was happening all over New York, all over the, all over the country. It's just uh, heartbreaking. Do you have any thoughts about parallels about what's happening now, especially with not just mental illness, but also the opioid crisis? Now, the opioid crisis kind of has affected middle class of all types everyone right. talks about right. now that it right. affects the uh, white middle class right. laws around making you know softer easier ways for people to do something other than jail time rehab right. etc diversion courts that that's happening because it has a lot of white victims but right. the current state of new york city and the opioid crisis and the mental health crisis do you Think about that as you see that unfold. When I got out in 2009, it, it was interesting because I noticed everyone from my generation, people, kids born in the 60s and early 70s and maybe a little bit later into the 70s, they were all homeless. They were all homeless, drug-addicted, mentally ill people. And it's not as if they were emptying out the, the uh, asylums because they actually cracked down in the 90s and started locking people up, if you remember, not only in, in jails, but in asylums. But anyone who ever got out had no follow through, had no kind of follow, follow up care. And now I see my, my generation, I see my contemporaries, and I feel so blessed that I'm not in that situation. But I see people my age, my contemporaries, all homeless and mentally ill and, and desperate. And it's sad, it's really sad. And uh, we, a, a lot can be said about how they let the black people fall through the cracks, but the minute it happens to the white kids, they're, they're quick with, you know, follow up care and they're quick with, you know, ways to make sure it doesn't happen to their kids, you know. Um, it's just, it's just a sad state of affairs. I, I don't know really what Eric Adams or Joe Biden or anybody is going to do to uh, redress this terrible blight that's happening, that's happened to the black community. Um, and you've got to be stronger than most to survive it nowadays. And people are surviving by, uh, it's become cool, or not cool, but almost a requirement to skirt the law to survive. Some yeah. might say they don't 
leave a lot of people much of a choice, right. especially when it gets down to the bureaucratic paperwork that you have to fill out. If you right. fill out one thing, you might not get housing. But if right. you say another thing that might not necessarily be true, then you'll be fast tracked for housing. So if somebody had their wits about them, so they say, right. and they're living on the street and they check one box and that'll get them housing, like who, who among us would not check the box even right. if it was so i think in those ways in those like bureaucratic red tape long line ways they do force people to choose i'll tell you when you're checking that box you know it's always been in the black community don't don't go to a mental hospital don't, which is why my book how the hospital always wins was became the first chronicle by an African-American from behind the walls of a mental hospital because black people, and I, to, to be a first after, it's kind of interesting, but it's not surprising because they, they always tell you, don't go to a mental hospital, don't talk to a psychiatrist, you're not crazy. And for me to admit, yes, I'm crazy, you know, and write a book about it, almost outs me as somebody who's not really a part of the community. But there is a disturbance within the black community, but it's not craziness because they've been gaslighting us for centuries, you know? So it's like, yeah, there's a disturbance, but we're, we're not crazy in that. We're just trying to survive in a system that's trying to kill us. And how do you do that? But just try to survive the best way you can <laughs> and don't call me crazy, you know? But when it gets so bad where you're out on the street or you have to commit crimes to survive, then you get caught up in the system and the system is not designed for you to survive in it. So it's a devilish catch-22. A lot of people say that right now is an important time as we come into our November elections with uh, especially Alvin Bragg. We've had him on the show, Manhattan mm. DA, Democratic Manhattan DA candidate, mm -hmm. talking about how he's going to spend some discretionary funds to help out the mentally ill diversion court, which would in turn have fuel more of a need for the city to kind of get their act together when it comes right. to resources for aftercare, um, after right, the hospital, right, right. after uh, prison for the mentally ill really specifically. Um, and I think that right now there's not a huge understanding of why there's so many mentally ill people on the street. Um, and it's hard to explain because it's a long sordid tale, 20 years in the making. Sure. Maybe, maybe longer. I mean, it's a broken, it's a broken system that you've got to overhaul it completely to get it even up to speed working. And even then it would take years for it to start kind of writing itself, but you got to overhaul it completely. And they always do piecemeal uh, quick fixes and band-aids and, you know, so, I mean, but it's a totally broken system. And a lot of it has, is, is governmental. A lot of it is in, in the whole critical race theory uh, in terms of citywide politics. It's, it's, thank goodness that we're talking about it now. Yeah, I mean, critical race theory can more specifically be taught on a city history level, which would be very, very interesting for someone to kind of uh, dig into. Um, so you've just given me an idea to find an, an expert guest for the future on city on city history. So a few things. Uh, give me the name of 
your book? The Hospital Always Wins is published by Chicago Review Press. Uh, it came out in 2016. Uh, it is, according to them, I don't even know, but according to my editor and, and publisher, the very first uh, memoir writings from an African-American from behind the walls of a mental hospital. And where can our listeners find your work, your artwork, your music, um, more about you? Okay, IssaIbrahim.com, I-S-S-A-I-B-R-A-H-I-M.com. There's links to my Instagram feed. I have a YouTube uh, channel with lots, with everything. You can just kind of bask in it and just, just drown in it, really. All the music, all the wacky videos, all the films I've done. Uh, everything's linkable. And this upcoming weekend, the weekend of Halloween, the Halloween, uh, you will be at the Queen's Night Market. Let's right? hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Because it, I, I'm checking the, the, the forecast every day, and it looks like it, it may be rain. And the night market does go on, even though it's rainy, but that would be a bit of a drag. When It's you're hard kinda... to pull out your artwork. So you, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, you and Susan yeah. sell prints from your artwork at the Queen's Night Market. Yes. And which this weekend will be the last weekend, correct? The last weekend for the season, yes. And Sue sells originals too. And it's very affordable, but very nice. And we were there last night because we're taping the Sunday morning, like you mentioned. And we did very well. Uh, so yeah, check us out. Hopefully we'll be there this coming Halloween. And wear a costume because uh, it's going to be a Halloween extravaganza. Um, and hopefully we'll be there. Unless it's really raining, then we may beg off. But don't tell the guys who rented that. Although I just did. So. <laughs> well, maybe they maybe they won't listen. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope they do, though. Let's well, hope let's they hope they also do. Um, yeah. So everybody, we heard a snippet from the song at the beginning. And we will play the rest of the song mm-hmm. after this interview. Thank you, Issa, for coming on. Thank you so much for contributing this song. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God bless. Merrick Road and Linden Boulevard Modest homes on tree-lined streets Once a haven for the blacks who made it a Negro bourgeoisie. Times have changed as things so often do, if only the young ones knew. Most remember burning embers, remnants of a wondrous place. It started with a crack. Never coming back Burnt down to the ground The town of Jamaica
the blacks have now gone blue Paranoia and depression All good lessons are hard to learn I recall the final days that lay to waste this wondrous place It started with a crack It's never Torn down to the ground, the town of Jamaica. The town of Jamaica. The town of Jamaica. Jamaica. My hometown of Queens, the town of Jamaica.